Hi, my name is Beth, and I am the host of the Seeking Light podcast. In a world that presents us with growth and challenges, there is tremendous light. And this podcast is a source of light through scriptural insights that I have gained through the years. Come join me as I share light in a world that can sometimes be confusing. Okay, everybody, I am very grateful you're here today. Um, so Matt and I have been in the ward that we're in right now um, for the last eight years. And when we got into the ward, we met a wonderful brother in our ward named Al Jorgensen. And Al turned 90 this year on May 10th. I asked him before we got started just to double check. So 1933. And I have to tell you, Al is amazing. He runs circles around most of us. He is always found in the service of other people. He stays active. He, um, a few years back, he took, helped with the boat trip out on the river with the youth and Matt was in his boat with him. And you can imagine he was probably 89, 88. Um, and he was driving that boat. He has knocked on my door and just said he wanted to say hi. Other times he's knocked on our door and he's given us ice cream. And when I was the Relief Society president, Al would be at moves. He would be at service projects. He would help um, the elders corn president and I in regards to the needs of um, brothers and sisters in the ward. So I read, I talked to Al and I'm like, Al, will you come on my podcast? I want everyone to hear you talk and share your life and give us some wisdom and knowledge. And so today you're going to hear from Al Jorgensen. So Al, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Al, you need to tell everybody, where did you grow up? Start from the beginning. Salt Lake City. What? Did you really? I did. Okay, so what, where did, what birth order, where did you come in your family? There are five of us, and I'm the middle one. You're the middle one. Older sisters, older brothers? Two older sisters, two younger brothers. Oh, My older sisters are uh, Darlene is 94 and a half. Sally is 91 and a half. I'm 90. Uh, my brother Steve is 82. And my brother David is 72. Wow. There's quite a gap there with the younger boys. Yeah. Did, did your mom and dad, was that a surprise? I don't know. <laughs> they you never said. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so what was it like growing up in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1933? Well, I know that I was a very, very cute baby because my mother said so. And she would know, and she would have an unbiased opinion, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in the 30s there. We lived at 1500 Richard Street, which is two miles south of Temple Square, straight wow. south. Wow. Uh, two blocks north of us was the ballpark, Dirksfield. It's still a ballpark 
but it's called, I think, Smith, uh, Smithfield or something like that. And uh, so our ward building was right across the street from our house. Uh, we were in the Jefferson Ward. My father was the bishop from uh, April 1940 to November of 1947, all through World War II. Wow. And uh, so he was very busy all those years. He was 36 years old when he started. Um, he never did go in the military. Uh, let's see, my sisters were born in 1928, 1931, me in 33, Dave, Steve in 41, and David in 1950. Yeah. So what was so, that like with your dad serving as the bishop during World War II? Well, the ward was right across the street. They had a, an exterior door in the church building, uh, which was their bishop's office. And uh, so whenever they finished their bishopric meeting, they would come outside, stand and talk for a few minutes and then disperse. Uh, so I knew all the neighbors. I lived there till I was 25 and got married and moved away. In the meantime, I went to elementary school at uh, McKinley School and then Jefferson School, elementary, Lincoln Junior High, and South High School. And wow. uh, the only one of those buildings still remaining is South High, but it was discontinued as a high school clear back in 1988 and uh, became a building of the Salt Lake Community College. So it's one of their campuses of which they have several. I'm still in touch with some of my high school friends. I uh, just called one up, a guy named Ron Fredrickson about a week ago, had a nice chat. Um, I graduated from high school in 1951. Um, And then I went to the University of Utah. I never did go you, to BYU. I was going to say, oh, uh oh, yeah, you're a Ute. I'm a Ute. And I will <laughs> be till I die. There you go. We're okay, up so to snuff. We never bluff. We're game for any fuss. I can't remember the rest of it. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, okay, Al, I want I got, you to go back when you were a child. Uh, what did you okay. do as children? What were you, did you play a lot? Did you work a lot? Was the money tight? What was your life like as a child? Yeah, money was tight. Dad had a job. Um, we had a house right there on the corner of Richard Street and Andrew Avenue. Um, we played in the neighborhood. Uh, I could name all the neighbors up and down the street and around the corner. Uh, we played ball 
on Richard Street. We played uh, baseball. Baseball. And, uh, yeah, we would gather out on the street, get two or three of us. We were first, we start out playing catch and then we'd, as a few more boys came out, we'd uh, play different types of baseball that you can play with just two or three or five players. One time, one of the players hit a ball and hit the windshield of my dad's car and broke it. Oh no. And we had, we had a slogan, which was, window breakers play it, pay alone. <laughs> I don't know what happened with that. When I was nine, I was riding my bike with my feet up on the handlebars, my arms out straight, and I fell down and broke my left arm. Oh, no. And, uh, Brother Jones across the street heard me crying, came out, helped me get back home, which wasn't far. They cradled my arm in a, a newspaper, took me to doctor, the doctor's office, and uh, he said it. So oh I wore a cast. Did he put you, did he put I was you under? Handed. No, he did what? not put me under. Oh, how did that feel to have your arm set? Oh, it was very painful. And... Uh, so it was a compound fracture, meaning that the bone broke kind of in the middle of the uh, forearm and uh, the, the bone poked through the skin. And so it was uh, a bad break. But uh, Brother Frank Jones uh, got me home. The doctor was... Uh, Oh, I'll tell you his name in a minute. And uh, a month later, I went back into his office. To see, he wanted to see me, how I was doing. And he said, it's healing crooked. So without further ado, he lifted my arm up and slammed it down on the counter and rebroke it. And that woke me up, I'm telling you. So he reset it and it healed properly. I still use it. I'm left-handed for writing and eating, but I play sports right-handed. Wow. So I remember my father was scheduled to perform a wedding, which he did in my house, in our house, and uh, but he forgot. And the couple came to the house and we had to summon dad from wherever he was, I don't remember. And so he went ahead and took care of it. He used to clean the ceiling with a putty. And it was uh, kind of a, I don't know what it was, a rubberish product that you could mold with your hands. And then he would uh, uh, stand on a chair or something so he could reach the ceiling and just uh, rub it back and forth. And you could see the marks until he got it all clean. And the reason it was dirty was because we had a coal furnace. And uh, so the uh, air was polluted, I suppose, up, up uh, against the ceiling. But we never suffered from it in any way. Um, my oldest sister got married at, at uh, age 17. 
but only a month away from being 18. And she had four boys. She still has them, of course. They're all still alive. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. Did your mother so, uh, stay home? Did she rate? Did your mother stay home or did she work? She stayed home. She stayed home all this time. And what time. did your dad do for a living? He worked for the Western Newspaper Union, and then he worked for. Uh, oh, he started a business with him with a partner named Harold Ford, and they had a printing business, and they called it the Ford Jorgensen Press. And later they split up, and my father took apart that printing machine, which was incredible, and moved it and re and put it back together in our basement and operated it there for several years as a kind of a second business. And his main customer was the church. And he printed head, uh, the headers for letterheads and for envelopes by the thousands and thousands. And uh, he employed me to help him deliver them up to the PBO, which is the presiding bishop's office, uh, whenever he got the order ready. So he did that for years, but then right after World War II, so 1945, 46, he and his brother, Henry, and two brothers-in-law, Eldon and Bill, started a business called Quality Linen Supply. And they operated that business as the four of them uh, for oh, many years. Uh, and it became a pretty good sized business. I worked for them for a number of years, clear up going to college, high school, college, and uh, and uh, even after I got married. So let's see, what else? Uh, well, I want to know, um, did you as a child feel any stress knowing that World War II was going on? Did you sense anything in your community or from your parents or from yes, your church? Yes, my father, my father had a map uh, and he used colored pins to show the progress of battles in Europe and also in the Pacific. Uh, so I could see that. So we were hearing about it all the time. We had lots of young men from our ward who were drafted or or joined up the services. And uh, if you had a serviceman in your family, you could hang a little uh, star in your window. And if any of them lost their life, it was, they got a gold star. So we had some gold stars in the ward. But there was probably 25 or 30 young men during the war years who went into the service. Wow. I remember one, Kay Jensen, he was a Marine and he got wounded in one of the Pacific Islands. And so he was sent home, you know, mm -hmm. to recover. Yeah, the did war you, was a big thing. 
Yeah, go ahead. The war was a big thing. Yeah, it was uh, on our minds all the time. Uh, and I've read since a lot about it. So uh, I don't know how to separate what I knew before from what I know now. Uh, the uh, We were a very loyal people. Uh, the president of the church was Heber J. Grant. And he died on May 14th, 1945, oh. just after uh, Germany collapsed, but before the Japanese uh, war was over. And so a man named uh, um, George Albert Smith became the president of the church at wow. that point. And he was president for about six years till 1951, I'm going to say. And that's when David O. McKay became president. Did you ever see any of the prophets, apostles, because you lived two blocks away from the church, from the temple? Did you ever well, see we were, any? We were two miles from Temple Square. And, oh, two you know, miles. Just to, okay. Yeah. We were two blocks from the ballpark. Okay, okay. So, yeah, I used to go. There used to be the Deseret Gym. And it was a gymnasium, and they had a swimming pool, and I would take swimming lessons up there, me, myself and a, a friend of mine named Ray Jones. And we would wander uh, after a swimming lesson outside, and it was right adjacent to the church office building, which is still there at 47 East South Temple. And we sometimes would see some of the brethren, and I remember seeing J. Reuben Clark and Heber J. Grant. Yeah. They were big, tall men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Al, what were you like, spiritually speaking? Say again? What? Tell me a little bit about your testimony as a child and as a young man. Did you have a strong testimony? I always knew the church was, I always knew the church was true. I uh, I remember Mrs. Eliason, who was the uh, person in charge of the junior Sunday school in the ward. And uh, one time we did a reenactment of The Man Without a Country, which is the story, I'm trying to think of his name, a story of a man who cursed the United States, and so the the judge said, "All right, you're never going to hear the name of the United States the rest of your life." And so he was put on a ship. This is a true story, if I could only think of the name of it. Um, he was put on a ship, and they were instructed not to ever mention the name of the United States of America. And so after many, many years, he happened to hear it from somebody when I mean, he broke down and uh, was totally repentant. So I was supposed to be him. Philip Nolan was the man's name. And so I was about six to six or seven or eight years old and it was in sacrament meeting. 
Wow. And I was at the mic I was at the microphone and I was supposed to say, darn, only the swear word, the United States of America. And I couldn't say it. I stopped right there. I messed up the whole program and I couldn't say it. They tried to get me to say it. And I still can't say it. So I remember that. I, we were patriotic and, and we knew the church was true. So. Uh, Did you read your so, scriptures? Yes. Dad would read to us from a book called. Um, oh, or something about the dust of the earth. And of course, later I realized that was in the Book of Mormon, that it was coming forth as from the dust of the earth. So, uh, we read the scriptures. Uh, my mother was very religious. Um, her father was Marlon Bancott. They lived around the corner. And um, his father was John Vancott, who was a general authority. Uh, he was of the first council of 70 back in the 1880s. Wow. So he, he was my great grandfather. Uh, he had five wives. Oh, I have to tell you this. Probably 10 years ago or so, I was giving my testimony in church and mentioned something about where I lived as a young man there on at 1500 Richard Street. And uh, after the meeting, Brother Bob White in our ward, he's yep. a big guy, he serves yep. on the Stake High Council. Yep. Bob came up to me and he said, I think uh, my my grandma lived around there. And uh, I said, what was her name? And he said, uh, uh, Vancott was her last name. And I said, oh yes, I knew her. She lived right around the corner. <laughs> uh, yes, we called her Aunt Vaughn. And she, her last name was White. Oh, I said, that's your last name, isn't it? He said, yes, she was my grandma. I said, well, she was my grandpa's sister. So oh that makes God. us cousins. Oh, so you and, and Bob are cousins? We are cousins. And we joke. We always say that I got the height. I'm five foot seven. He's six foot four. Yeah. And he got the brains. So that's our joke. Oh uh, my gosh, what a small often, world. Uh, yeah, we often speak of uh, of his grandma and my grandpa and the Van Cott family. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> when did you get your first job? When did you have your very first job? I was a newspaper boy, a paper boy. I had a route over on started on State Street and 17th South, went east to 5th East and then south by the Whittier School and back. 
and I had about 75 papers to deliver. I worked for the Salt Lake Telegram and it was later discontinued. It was an evening paper, it was part of the Salt Lake Tribune, Salt Lake Telegram uh, newspaper group. So I did, I think I was about 14 or 15. So yeah, and we had to go after we did it once a month, we had to go around to all of our customers and collect from them. And as, as soon as we got enough money to pay for all the newspapers that we had delivered, whatever else we collected was our pay. And it wasn't much. <laughs> <laughs> How much was it? Uh, I think I made maybe $15 a month, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Then I worked uh, at South High. I worked in the J.G. McDonald's Candy Company, which was downtown. I would catch a bus right in front of the school, after school. And I was a janitor down there. And how Next was that? Question. How was that? How well, was, that was being a janitor? That was, that was better. That was okay. Yeah. Did you ever we have a girl a, a girlfriend in high school? Yeah, I, I like June Samuelson. <laughs> <laughs> Did you date Years how, later. what was what was dating like for you guys? Oh, we we uh we would go to the movies downtown. And, and then we would get a hamburger or something. Yeah. my Oh, my first date was Pat Bushman. Did you and double date or did you go by yourself? Went by myself. Wow, that was brave. She lived in our ward. Yeah. She was a very nice girl. So when you... I think she look at your childhood can you share with us a funny story from your that you remember from your childhood hmm let's see let me think um i can't think of one you can't my mother had a great <laughs> sense of humor just like she you was, well, better, much better. And she was very religious. But her uh, her two sisters and her brother were not. And they all lived around there. Well, I take that back. One sister lived back in Washington, D.C. But my Aunt Martha lived around the other corner to the south. And I quite liked her. She was very, very nice. She was not active in the church. And her brother was El Uncle Elmer. He smoked, but he would come and knock on our back, back door and he would want to see Ruthie, my mother's name was Ruth, to give her a Mother's Day present or a birthday present. And uh, so he, you know, he was a nice man. He cared about her. That's wonderful. It was, it was nice. Okay, so you 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 get done high school, and 
where, what are your plans for your future? I know you went to the University of Utah, but you graduated in 1951. Were you going to go on a mission or was that not something that the young men did during your time because of the war? The, the Korean War started in 1950. And so we were subject to the draft. And so my parents encouraged me to go to the university and join the ROTC program there, which is Reserve Officer Training Corps. And uh, so I did that. Uh, and that gave me a deferment because I was in military training. Well, I'll tell you something funny that happened there. We okay. were issued uniforms. We were right. We had rifles and everything. We marched and we drilled and we learned military history and everything. So one time we were marching on the university campus and there was a whole lot of us and we were in a long line and I was at the head of the line and I heard the command, column left, march. And so I happened to turn right instead of left. And I marched along and I suddenly noticed the absence of the pitter patter of tiny feet behind me. There was none. I turned <laughs> around and the column behind me did turn left. I was the only one who turned right. So I turned around and ran, got back at the head of the column and everybody was laughing at me. And I thought <laughs> it was pretty funny myself. That's where I learned my right hand from my left hand. <laughs> That's that awesome. That so funny. while you're in the ROTC, you are you enrolled at University of Utah? Yes. Yeah, you're taking classes and everything. What were you yeah. what was your desired goal to become? What did you want to do with my, your degree? My major at the time, my major was economics. Oh so wow. I finally got my, my degree in economics. But that was a few years later. I went two years uh, till 19, this, this, the uh, early summer of 1953. And I have one eye that is, was damaged when I was a small child. And so it was uncorrectable by any kind of lenses, possibly a, cornea transplant would have worked, but we didn't ever do that. So I was washed out of the ROTC. Oh. Uh, after two years of being in it, and I got you know credit for it, but uh, they would not let me continue because they wanted to have a commissioned officer who could, I was in the Air Force ROTC, so I wasn't gonna be a flyer. And so in the 53, the summer of, I got a mission call. <gasps> and the mission call was to Norway. So in the fall of 53, I was 20 and a half years old. Um, so in October, October 15th, I had my departure from the railroad station in Salt Lake City, DNRG, Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. Uh, so myself and I think 15 or 
so missionaries all leaving at the same time for their fields of labor. And so I embarked on the train for New York City on October 15th. Uh, three days later, we arrived in New York. I stayed overnight. And on the uh, fourth day, I embarked on a ship called the SS, uh, what was it? The SS Oslo Fjord was the name of the ship. And it took us 10 days to sail from New York to Copenhagen, nine days to Copenhagen and one more day up to Oslo, Norway. So 10 days, so a total of 14 days to get there. And I remember thinking, boy, this is a long way from home. But uh, so I was three, three weeks in the mission home in Oslo, Norway. I met the mission president, President Andresen. And then he, made, he called me to be uh, a companion to uh, a big tall guy. And we went down to Fredrikstad, Norway. And I was with him for two weeks. And then the president sent me a letter and made me a senior companion. <laughs> I'd been in the country for five and a half weeks all together. And my companion and I were sent to a place called Willestrom, which is a suburb of Oslo. But we had to go by train to Lillestrøm and we lived in the mission home in Oslo. So uh, we went out to Lillestrøm every day and back. And after a month, we managed to find a place to live out in Lillestrøm. So we moved out there and we would go tracting. Um, and we had a canned speech introducing ourselves and offering to loan the Book of Mormon to people. And I remember telling them that we'll come back next week and answer your questions. And I thought, by next week, I'll sh I should know the language. <laughs> well, it took a lot longer, <laughs> but I did learn and I learned it well. I still speak Norwegian. I don't know if you know Jim Salyers and yep. uh, yep. the other ward. He was over here this morning helping me with this uh, uh, podcast stuff. Yeah. And uh, he's a very wonderful guy. And I showed him a letter that I wrote a couple of weeks ago, a month ago. Uh, to a fellow over in Norway, and I wrote it in Norwegian, and he mm -hmm. answered me in Norwegian. Oh my and I gosh! It to him. He said, "Oh, this is interesting." He's, <laughs> I can't read a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> what I did, well, you know, back in the uh, first week of of May this year, it was announced where the new Norwegian temple is going to be built. The temple itself was announced two years ago by President Nelson, but uh, they just uh, in May announced where it's going to be. They actually finally got a location. <clears throat> and I had looked it up and I, when I wrote to this fellow over in Norway, I said, 
It looks to me like it's in your neighborhood. And when he wrote me back, he says, yeah, it's very close, only 10 minutes away. And uh, it was within the ward that uh, Linda and I lived in when we were missionaries over there back in 2004 to 2006. We went to the Sanvika ward. And uh, so the temple location is within the ward boundaries. So I, I want very much, I hope I live long enough now, being 90 already, um, to go back there when the temple is going to be dedicated to go to the dedication. That's my goal. And well, it's how, kind of uh, long term. It might be three to five years, you know. Right. I hope by then that they will have it done, you know. And I've seen a rendering of it, you know, a picture of what they expect it to look like. So I'm quite excited about that. What was your mission like in Norway? Tell me about it. Was it for two years or was it a three-year mission? Two and, what a, half was? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. Back in those days, if you went to a foreign mission where you had to learn the language, you had, we have no language training prior to going. So when we got there, we had to learn it on the job, on the job training. So we, we had language lessons every day along with uh, gospel lessons. And I carried a pocket New Testament in Norwegian. I still have one. I carry it with me all the time. I'm always looking stuff up in, in that. Uh, I'm still into Norwegian. We take the Liahona magazine. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Well, they publish uh, a Norwegian edition of it. And so I get that every month along. And I also get the English one. They come separately. So I read articles in it from, you know, from time to time. So in those days, uh, we had no cars. We just used bicycles or we walked. And there were buses, however, yeah, buses. So we relied on money sent from home to sustain us, but it only cost about, oh, 50 to 75 kroner a month, which is only 10 bucks. Uh, wow. So that's, uh, so we, I worked in several different places. I worked there in Frederikstad and then Lillestrøm, and then I was in the mission office for about 16 months. And then I was sent down to Kristiansand, which is in the very southern tip. And then after that, I went up to a place called Narvik, which is way north, north of the Arctic Circle. So wow. far north, you had to look south to see the northern lights. Yes. Yeah. That's true. And so I was up there from November till April. So it was winter almost all the whole time. How did you we survive the cold? Oh, we got used to it, I guess. Worse than the cold was the dark. It was oh. dark a lot. Yeah. So uh, especially up there in Norway, it was... It was dark all the time, but uh, 
we survived well, I, I would say. We did all right. Uh, the very southern part of Norway is, they have a lot of sunshine down there. So uh, my grandmother, my father's mother was born in Bergen, Norway, which is a big city on the west coast of Norway. And uh, her last name was Denstad, which means the place. And it, I always thought Denstad was a place over by Bergen. And I looked for it on the map. I looked for it. I never could find it as a young missionary. Then, and, that, and I left Norway in 1956. The next time I went back there was 1997. It was actually 42 years later. And I still didn't find Denstad. Then when Linda and I went there in 2004, uh, it was early 2005, I asked our landlord, we lived in a basement apartment, uh, about where Denstad might be. And he says, oh, I know where it is. I said, oh, where? <laughs> he said, well, come on upstairs. I've got an atlas you know, book of maps of Norway, page after page. of, And so I went up and uh, he turned to the page of Trondheim, Norway, which is quite a ways north. And across the fjord from Trondheim was a peninsula named Rissa. And there's Densad right in the middle of Rissa. I could see the dot on the map. Wow, I was thrilled. I said, well, I, I'm pretty sure I have a great, great grandparents from there. So I looked up my own genealogy and uh, got the name. And I noticed that the name of Rissa was on there. And so uh, two or three months later, Linda and I went up there on a night train. We got up there in the morning. And am I putting you to sleep? No, keep going. Not at all. <laughs> so we got up there and uh, we wandered around town. We went to the dock area. And I inquired at the office of the dock about uh, going over to Rissa. And they said, well, we have a ferry boat. It leaves... Uh, at certain times every day, goes over there. It's about a half an hour trip on the fjord. And so uh, I was talking about my great great grandfather being from Denstad. And a young lady that was working in that office came over to the window and said, Did you say Denstad? I said, Yes. She said, Well, my grandmother lives there. Oh, I said, well, maybe we're related. And so I got my information out. And she said, uh, first I had asked if, if there, uh, I could see Denstad was over there, but it was about 16 or 17 kilometers inland. I said, is there a train or a bus or something? 
that we could go from the dock over to at Rissat inland to Denstad. No, there's nothing. You'd have to take a taxi. Wow. So I was thinking, oh, it's expensive, but uh, we're this far. We better go the rest of the way. But then this young lady phoned up her grandma, and then she turned to me and she said, you won't have to go by taxi. My grandma will come to the dock and pick you up. Wow. So we got on the uh, ferry boat, and the ferry boat had been waiting and waiting for us. So we got on, paid our fare, and went across on the fjord, which is choppy water. And we got over there, and there was this grandma-looking lady waiting for us. And her name was Edelf Fremo. Edel Fremo. And Edel means noble in English. And so uh, she piled us in her, uh, you know, I think it was a Toyota, a Toyota van. And she drove us over to Densod. And Densod consists of, uh, let's see, three houses and two barns. That's it. That's the whole place of Denistad. And uh, so we, she got out all her genealogy and to make a long story short, we're not related. But <laughs> it turns out that my, the name Denistad was the name of the place. And my grandma took that name of Denistad. And I guess that was a common thing to do. Because in reality, my surname would have been Ingebrigtsen. So <laughs> Densad is a lot easier to spell. So uh, anyway, so then she took us by car, by her car, on the other side of the peninsula of Rissa to the Rissa Church, which was the Norwegian state church. Uh, it's uh, Lutheran. Mm. And around the church is a graveyard. And we talked to the caretaker of the graveyard uh, and uh, compared information about my great great grandfather. And he had the exact same information. And he told us where the grave was. But he said, there are three graves over there that are not, they're unmarked. We don't know who is buried in which of those three graves. But your great-great-grandfather is one of them. So we looked it all over and uh, we were very pleased, took some pictures and so forth. Uh, and I got to go up there a second time, a couple of months later because uh, Edel Tremo's son-in-law died and he was only 40. Hmm. And uh, the mission president allowed me to go up. Uh, and I went by airplane that time up to Tronium and then across the fjord and et cetera. And I went to the funeral. And then I went to the county offices to see if I could put a headstone on one of those graves. And they said, no. Oh. Uh, I said, why not? Because you don't know which grave it is. I says, you know what? It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. No, they said, no, you can't. But there's another reason. What's that? 90 years after death, the grave reverts back to the county and they can bury somebody else there. Oh. Well, he died. He died in 1895. And this was 2005. That's 110 years. Way over the 90-year limit. So I was dead in the water on that one. So it's still on. <laughs> I was really disappointed. I didn't have any money to do it with, but I figured I could get the relatives to pitch in and we put a headstone up or something. Never happened. Uh, my youngest brother that's 72 is quite wealthy. And uh, a few years later, two or three, only two or three years later, he traveled over there and he went to see uh, the Fremo family and uh, all of this. So uh, that would have been a second chance, but it didn't happen. So uh, that was an exciting occasion. Oh, yeah. Uh, it really was. It really was. So you, you've inside. literally, you've gone to Norway three times. Yes. So when yeah. you finished your mission in 1956, before you come home, what, what, give me one lesson. I know your mission probably taught you a lot, but what's one thing that your mission taught you? Well, there was so much, so much that it taught me. I lived in all those different communities. I loved the people. I remembered them. When I went back there many years later, I looked them up. I talked to them. Uh, it was the personal touch, I would say. Uh, the devoted members of the church were amazing. Uh, the place we lived in in Narvik, which is Mangnesgata and number two. Uh, the man of the house was not a member of the church, but his wife was. And But we got to be good friends. The place where we lived in Sanvika, where Linda and I lived, our landlord, the one who showed me where Rissa, uh, where Densad was on the map. Uh, his name was Knut, uh, and his wife was Arnhild. And one day I was out walking and I saw Knut. He didn't have a shirt on, it was summertime, and he was tan. And I said uh, to him, Knut, which means, where are you going? And he said, Yes, And that means I'm going to my swimming pool. So I said, Which means there isn't any swimming pool around here at all. And he said, Fjorden, yeah, Fjorden. Which means I'm going swimming in the fjord. The fjord <laughs> is cold. Yeah. And I said, what? You are? Yes. 
Anyway, we were good friends. He called us up. Was it last Christmas or the Christmas before? Anyway, he called us on the phone and we chatted. We got to be good friends. When it snowed in the wintertime there, uh, our car was parked outside and the snow would be uh, 16 inches on top of the car and everywhere on the ground. And I would go out and help him shovel the snow off of all the driveway so we could get out. And he, he and I were buddies. He was not a member of the church. But the first October after we got there, we got to Norway, Linda and I, in July. And the next October was state conference. And Elder L. Tom Perry, the apostle, came. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he installed a new stake presidency. And I invited Knut and Arneel, but only Knut came, to go to the conference with us. And it was held in a large auditorium in downtown Oslo. And I remember Knut looking at all the people as they came in, uh, dressed up, you know, state conference. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, was, there were a number of families with children and uh, some with uh, perambulators. You know what that is? No. It's a baby buggy. Oh, yeah. We had right, one when I was right. a child. Yeah, we had one as a child. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he, I remember turning to me and he said, these are nice people. These are <laughs> nice people. I think he expected to see a bunch of rabble, you know, because we're Mormons. And he, I think had a revelation that day that we were okay. We were good Norwegian people. Mm. You asked me what I learned. Well, it's all tied up in the language. I learned to bear testimony all the time. And that reminds me in this most recent general conference, Sister Corden, is mm -hmm. it Bonnie Corden? Bonnie Corden, uh-huh. I knew her, her parents in Idaho Falls. Oh. Harold Hillam and Carol Rasmussen Hillam. That's a very Norwegian name, Rasmussen. And Harold Hillam himself, he became one of the 70. But anyway, Sister Corden spoke last April. And she said her father gave her the advice that she should always bear a testimony. Never, oh yeah, it was never miss an opportunity to bear a testimony or a witness of the Savior. That's pretty good advice and so Great easy advice. to follow. Yes. Yeah. So, Al, you get done your mission. Do you get on another boat? and come back home? Yes. Okay, what when you when you ride the boat, what are you in uh seats? Are you in a hull? Where are you? What how are you tra being transported? 
we had a stateroom on okay. the ship. It was the USS United States. It was a big ship uh, sailing out of Southampton, England. And the way I got from Norway to Southampton was a six week trip throughout Europe. Whoa. Yeah, that was amazing because <laughs> my friend and I, who uh, we went on our missions together, his name was Val Lillianquist, which is a Swedish name, but he went to Norway. And we went to Norway at the same time, came home at the same time. But all the two and a half years in Norway, we didn't see each other. We were uh, separated in different areas. But his mother and father flew over to Norway at the end of the mission and bought a VW bug. And the four of us went in that little car with our luggage and traveled Europe. Oh my God. Val drove and I rode shotgun and the parents sat in the back. <laughs> and we went all over, no kidding. So we ended up in England and uh, we visited the site where the London temple was going to be built. This was in 1956, right? And right. so it was built in 1958 and went into operation in 58, two years later. So we got on that ship and it was a, it's a big ship. Uh, we held meetings, there was a bunch of missionaries going home and my parents came to New York and met us. And uh, on the way home, we, through the, USA, we visited church history sites. And we went to Nauvoo. We saw the uh, home where Joseph Smith lived. We were steeped in the church history and in the gospel. Uh, so it's been in our lives, in my life, ever. And my sisters and brothers are all active in the church. Wow. So, yeah. When you returned home to Salt Lake City, did you get married soon thereafter? And how did you find your wife? I knew her in junior high school. Oh. And South High School. And a year out of high school, she got married. Oh. And uh, I remember going to the reception. Oh my gosh. Yes, I knew the man. He also went to South. He was a year older than us. <clears throat> but I went to the university <clears throat> for two years, then went on the mission for three school years. When I came back, I went one year back to school. Then to avoid the draft, I joined the army. Oh, you did. So, uh, yeah, I was in the U.S. Army uh, through the National Guard, the Utah National Guard. And I was uh, in that. Then I, I was on active duty for most of the year. I came home and was looking for a date. And I called up my friend Jeannie. And she says, well, I can't. I'm, I'm singing with a group 
uh, for this Christmas shoppers. It was Christmas time. She said, but why don't you call Elaine? So I said, oh, she, uh, she's married. And she said, no, she's, she's divorced. I said, oh, is that right? And uh, so uh, she looked up Elaine's number. I was at Jeannie's house. So I called up Elaine and asked her for a date for that very night. A group of my friends, buddies, we were going to have a get together. And she said, well, she remembered me. Uh, I have to get a babysitter. So call me back in a little while. Okay. And I remember turning to Jeannie and saying, she really does have children, three children. She says, I told you that, you dummy. You didn't say you dummy. But uh, so I called her back in a half hour or so, and she said, okay. So I got her address, and uh, I went and picked her up, and we went up to a cabin up near Brighton, Utah. And of course, there's lots of snow. It's late December. Uh, and we went in this cabin, and we talked and laughed and ate and and then we left and on going back out to the car on the road we had to negotiate a, a big uh, snowbank so I held her hand and that's when I fell in love <laughs> I I remember thinking oh my goodness so uh, I met her children Julie Brad and Bud and uh, so we continued to date for a few months there. And later in the spring, I got a ring from a jeweler in downtown Salt Lake that I knew. And it was a blue sapphire with oh, tiny Princess Diana. Yeah, yeah. Quite pretty. And uh, my daughter, Bonnie, has that ring. So anyway, uh, I asked her to marry me and she said, yes, but you can back out anytime because you know, I, I realize that this is pretty different. You know, I have lots of baggage, three children. So, I, so we continued to date and I was re-enrolled in the university to finish my degree and uh, I was still in the military but going to weekend meetings and uh, summer camp down to San Francisco uh, but I graduated at the end of August of 1958 and we were married one week later on September 5th 1958 she had been married in the temple, so she, and so she and I were married in the temple, but in what they called a time-only ceremony, not time and all eternity, in other words. Have you heard of that? Yep, I totally have. Okay, so uh, we started, the, the oldest child was by then five, five and a half. We started her in school and we started her under the name of Julie Jorgensen. Uh, 
And in the meantime, we started the process of adoption for me. So at the end of the year, the adoption became final and the children got my last name of Jorgensen, which pleased me no end. The man who handled the adoption was a guy named Frank Matheson and his wife was Elaine's cousin. And he only charged me $200. <laughs> That's the best deal in history. $200 yeah. for three kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so uh, one year from our marriage, we uh, the adoption became final. And in the meantime, we had applied to the general authorities for a cancellation of that ceiling that she had. And that came through from President McKay on November the 2nd. He sent her a letter. And so on December 28th, we were back in the Salt Lake Temple being sealed. I tried to have the children sealed to me, but they wouldn't do it. They said, well, they're born in the covenant. They don't need to be. Okay, you know. So they're sealed to her and she's sealed to me. And we, and that's the way it has been. Uh, then two months later in February, we had our, she had her fourth child, my first, and that was Joel. I don't know if you've met Joel. I haven't yet. Oh, okay. He's 63 now. <laughs> so, uh, he was born in February 1950, no, 1960. Yeah, 1960. So we lived in, uh, we bought a house, $12,000 for a house. No way. I was, we bought it from her dad. And uh, you had to have 10% down, which is 1200 Right. I only had six, I had I managed to have $600. So he says, okay, I'll take that and you can owe me the other 600. So I was paying him $10 a month uh, <laughs> for five years, but it didn't go that long. Uh, about uh, two years later, we uh, pulled up stakes and moved to Durango, Colorado. Uh, so when we sold the house, I went to the bank and got the balance I owed him, which was around $450 and paid him off in $1 bills. <laughs> so we handled our debt correctly. So we moved to Durango, lived there five years, and we came back to Salt Lake. Um, lived there three and a half years. I was in the bishopric there. And then I got a job with John Deere Company and moved to Idaho Falls. And that was in 1968, 69. It was in February of 69 that we actually moved. And so we lived in Idaho Falls for six years. And uh, while we lived there, the oldest girl, Julie, had a boyfriend and they got married. And uh, 
her younger brother, Brad, he had a girlfriend from high school and they got married. So I bought it and so my oldest granddaughter is Melissa. She was born in 1974. That's my year, Al. I'm 49 this right? year. Yep, in a week and two days, I'll be 49 years old. So 1974. Yes. So did you did you and Elaine have any more children after Joel? Yes, we had Joel, and then we had Bonnie, and then we had Ben. So we had six children. And I still have them. They're all still um, alive. Oh, yeah. Uh, Julie, is the oldest, is now 70. She's divorced. She lives in Plano, Texas, which is near Prosper. And Melissa, her daughter, lives in Prosper. And Melissa is 49 also. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Prosper is the site of a new temple that's going oh, to be built. Wow. Just announced uh, last fall. Oh, so, wow. So that's interesting. And then Brad, Brad in May, just last month, he turned 69. And the next child, Charles, whom we call Bud, his birthday's coming right up next week on June 29th. He'll be 67. And Joel is 63. He lives on the other side of Portland. We're very close. And then Bonnie lives in, she lived in Troutdale, but now she lives down in uh, Staten near Salem. Uh -huh. uh, and she, on May 28th, she became 60. And then the youngest is Ben in uh, mid-July, coming up July 13th. He will be 53, 53. Wow. He is a school teacher. He teaches uh, English uh, in the, uh, I think it's the West Jordan or South Jordan School District in Salt Lake. And he lives in Farmington, Utah. So those are my six kids. And they were all here for my birthday on May 10th. Yes, there was a big celebration. So that how many wonderful. how many years were you and Elaine married before she passed away? 39 and a half. 39 and a half. And we were, yeah. We, what happened was we were on a mission in England and Wales. And we arrived there in February of 1997. And we first lived in Exeter, England for six months. And uh, I had served uh, as a counselor in the stake presidency and the president was Larry Linton. Uh-huh, I've heard, heard of him. Name? I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, I was one of his counselors and uh, then I was released to go on a mission. And, uh, but he and Maria, his wife, came with her parents. No, 
Yeah, her parents, it was her parents. They came over to England and to see us. And so we got to see them while we were in Exeter. And then uh, we were transferred over to a place in Wales called Carmarthen. And we had been there for six weeks when Elaine didn't feel well. I took her to the doctor. Uh, she had yellow jaundice. He said, I want you to go to the hospital. I said, okay, uh, we'll get over there in the next day or two. He says, no, I want you to take her there today. Oh, so I did. And uh, they got her into, um, what do you call the big machine? Oh, like an MRI? Uh, an MRI. And uh, discovered that she had pancreatic cancer. Uh, well, I didn't know how bad that was, but she did. And so uh, when I found out how bad it was, I thought, well, I guess we better go home to treat this and see if we can get through it. So two weeks later, we left our mission. It was the very first day of October, 1957. 87, excuse me, 87, 1987. We were in the Bristol mission. And so we came home that day, October the 1st. And she lived for six months and one week and passed away right here in this house. She's buried in that uh, cemetery across from the Gresham Post Office. Oh yeah. You know where that is. Yeah. Yeah. What what did there. her what did her passing do to you? Oh my. We were a really close couple. All the time. I I was devastated, no doubt about it. I I was. Uh, Shortly after that, I was serving as a high counselor. And uh, I remember getting up to bear my testimony and I couldn't even talk. I was just overcome. But I remember calling on my daughter Bonnie to come over and show me how to work the washing machine. I didn't know anything. Uh, but I got to the point where I could live by myself and keep the place up, mow the lawn, clean the toilet, buy the groceries, fix meals, do the chores, you know, all that stuff. Uh, then it was, uh, October, about two and a half, yeah, about two and a half years later, October. I uh, again, I was serving as eye counselor, and I went to a single singles conference, and that's where I met Linda. She was single. She'd been single for seventeen years, divorced, and. Um, when I found out her name, I'd heard that before from mutual friends. And so I uh, 
I think a week or so later, I got her number and called her up and asked her to go out to dinner. And so we went out to dinner. And then a couple of months later, her father's, her mother passed, had passed away that summer. And her father was going to remarry over in Weezer, Idaho, which is an hour north of Boise. Yep. And she went over there to that occasion and uh, told her father about me. But didn't tell me that. But uh, anyway, so uh, about a month later, Joel, my son Joel's wife, her name is Loretta, her mother and father were driving over here from Rexburg. They lived on a farm out of Rexburg. And the mother became ill. They didn't get all the way here. They stopped at the Dalles, put her in the hospital. She died there. And so they took her home and to bury her. And they had a funeral over there at Rexburg. Uh, and I decided to go to it. I was dating Linda, but I thought, well, I, I think I'll go over to that funeral. And so I drove over there. And on the way, I stopped at Weezer and I called up on the phone. I looked up their number and called Linda's dad. Told him I was in town going over to Rexburg, which is a long ways from Weezer. It's clear right, across the state. Right, right, <laughs> right. And he said, well, stop by and we'll give you a snack. Okay, so I went over there. And uh, I was pretty interested in Linda at that point. And I said, among other things to him, what would you think if I asked Linda to marry me? Oh, that'd be wonderful. I'm all for it. Yeah, I could do that. And I, I knew he would because he'd only gotten married a month ago. He got to be in favor of it, you know. So I went to the funeral and when I came back, uh, I got a ring and uh, Linda and I had a date. And it was on the 7th of December, 2000, 2000 the year 2000. And uh, I asked her to marry me and she went. Oh my goodness, she put her hands up to her face. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And I said, well, is that a yes? And she went, oh my goodness, I guess so. <laughs> I went and I, guess so. I thought she means yes. My, my male ego kicked in and I said to myself, she means yes. And I was convinced of it because uh, the next day she wore that ring to to work. And she worked at, in a law firm downtown. The law firm was uh, on a high rise building. Uh, and uh, the, the lawyer she worked for was uh, James Bean, President Bean who was the moving force to getting the property together for the Portland Temple. And he was a stake president as well over in Oregon City. He's still there. 
he's six months, seven months younger than me. He'll be 90 next January. So uh, uh, she continued to work there and uh, she agreed to marry me. We got married next, the next March, March the 17th, 2001. 2001. Okay, so you you talked about you and Linda, you served a mission, you shared some of your experiences from that mission in 2004 to 2006. And I want to ask you some things about your life right now. I want to know, because you golf, you drive your boat, I don't yes. know if you've sold it. You are very active. Yes. And Al, you are the most active 90 year old I think I've ever met. So what, what keeps you moving? What keeps you getting up and being active and doing things? What is it? Well, I play golf with two other guys. One of them is 92 and the other one is 90 and a, um, seven or eight months older than me. So we're 192 and 290s. And we play at Glendevere Golf Course, which is free for us because we're 85 and up. Oh. <laughs> so it's a good deal. Yeah. It's not it an expensive for us. No. But we always we rent a cart, a couple of carts for $11 each. So that's our expense. So that gets me up because we'll play usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We played Monday this week and Wednesday, and we have a tea time for third, for tomorrow. Wow. Uh, but I, the thing that keeps me going is that I've been, I've been refurbished. <laughs> uh, in 2017, I had, uh, kidney problems, kidney stones, and I got uh, strep. I was put in a hospital and I got strep uh, and I was very, very sick. I was in ICU for three or four days. And uh, our bishop was Mike Miller. He came to see me. Matt and I came to see you too. Do you remember that? At that time? Yep. We came and we helped you brush your teeth and we helped okay. you get a drink. Do you remember? I was, yeah, I was miserable. Yes, you were. <laughs> I, I, I was, was very scared that you weren't, that you weren't going to make it. I know everybody was. Yeah. Whole family. Yeah. So, uh, I was in the hospital for a week, more than a week. And then they, got me out but uh and I got a little bit better in January I got better and then in February on on February 11th I had a heart attack right and it really surprised me yeah I came over and, to uh, visit you at your house and so Linda took me to the urgent care right by Fred Meyer. Yep. And uh, they put EKG uh, cords on me. 
hustled me out into a ambulance and took me down to the Mountain Hood Hospital. Uh, there they tested me some more and they said, yep, you've had a heart attack. And uh, so they took me from there down to Emanuel Hospital. Yeah. And I called up my physician on the phone who was Richard Kraft. He was the stake president of the Gresham stake. And uh, I said, they tell me I need to have major surgery. I said, what, what do you think? He said, well, how many blockages do you have? I said, well, I have three or four. He says, then you want a bypass surgery, not stints, because it's a better fix. And so that relieved me just to know that he would give me that advice. So I told the, the doctors down at uh, Emmanuel to let's, let's do the big thing. So that's open heart surgery. And they cut through your breastbone, pry it apart, actually take hold of the heart muscle and they reroute veins or arteries to facilitate the flow of blood. And it's, I remember thinking, this is incredible. How can they do this? How can they have the courage as a physician to cut people open and do this? And I take it, I take a little credit. I gotta have courage to let them do it, you know. Oh, so I was in there for a few days. Then they got me up, made me walk. Uh, which is very traumatic. And in the process, you lose all of your inhibitions and you have to <laughs> let the nurses have at you. Yeah. And they do. They, they, and it was funny. It was very funny. I remember laying on this bed, totally bare, and two ladies came in with handheld electric razors and they shaved every hair on my whole body and uh, they were talking together and giggling and talking and I finally I said to them what is so funny and that sent them into paroxysms of hilarity they laughed and laughed and laughed and I figured out I must be pretty skinny. <laughs> anyway, I remember that. <laughs> it was after that operation. Anyway, so that was an exciting time. So then later I had that same spring, about three months later, I had uh, prostate surgery. And that has worked really well. It's uh, the same but different from what Brother Pierce recently had. Bob Pierce. Oh, yeah. 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 So you've you've I got mean, all new parts, don't you, Al? You're you're kind of like well, a robot. Well, no, they're they're re they're re uh, refurbished. Re yes. <laughs> but they're not but it's the same old parts. Yeah. But I do have a new part. Uh, 
last year at the first of May, I had a stroke. And I came home from the Bishop's storehouse where I work. Um, and I said to Linda, there's something wrong with me. Well, she immediately perceived that my speech was garbled. So she called the doctor. They said, don't bring him here. Take him directly right now down to the hospital. So she did. We went down there. They came out in the wheelchair and got me out of the car. And they gave me two medicines, which reversed. Yes. Uh, and so that the blood flow would go to the brain. Yes. Uh, and that brought me back. So I got well real quick. And the next Sunday I came to church. And you know where brother and sister Lindhorst always yep. sit in that back yep. corner. Yep. I said to Don Lindhorst, I said, wow, Don, everything, after everything I've been through, I'm still ugly. And he <laughs> says, yeah, I noticed that. I, that really struck me funny. I thought that was very funny. So uh, I got better. And then in September, they, they noticed uh, I have a heart monitor. And so uh, they find, they told me your heart rate goes down into the 30s in the middle of the night. Whoa. And it's supposed to be in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And so finally they said, uh, I think you better get a heart. Um, what do you call it? Um, Def defibrillator? Or a... No way. Uh, Uh, is it something that checks, ch watches your heart to see if it stops? Yeah, it fits in your chest. Yes, I know. I can't think right now, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So at the end of September, I got, I went in and they did an operation to place a uh, pacemaker. A pacemaker. That's, That's it. it. Yeah. Pacemaker. Yeah. And so I have one right, right here on my left chest since last September. So I have that. And so that puts my heart rate back up around 60. And so that's a good thing, you know. And so uh, I, I quit playing golf for two months at that time. Golf is a, you know, it seems like a very benign sport. <laughs> it's not. But, when you swing a golf club, uh, and I remember playing golf with you and Matt out at yep up uh, up the canyon there. Yep. Um, when you swing to to uh, with your driver, when you tee off, and also out on the fairways, the only thing that's not uh, very uh, strenuous. Is when you're putting. That's, yeah. that's very that's very low key, but it's very hard to do. But anyway, so um, I've been playing golf with these other two guys before all this happened, and since we're still doing it. And uh, one of us calls up the golf course and secures a tee time, uh, and we go. We just meet down there and go. 
Now, do you yes. still work at the um, the storehouse? Yes. Yeah, I'm just there one day a week. I help put up the meat, the frozen meat orders. Have you ever seen? Have you been down there as a yep. inside prison? You know. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, and they've had a recent, uh, well, two years now, I think. They were uh, totally remodeled. Yes. Yeah. I've seen but that. It's a big warehouse with an office area. And uh, the meats are kept in a huge uh, freezer. You know, and when I say freezer, I mean it's kept at 11 degrees below zero. Oh, wow. So zero is 32. Yep. And it's 11 degrees below zero. Yeah. They also have, we call it a cooler, which is a refrigerator of the same size. And it's for vegetables of various sorts. And it only goes down to 37 degrees above zero, right? Mm. So I work in the cold freezer. And uh, it's like last Monday, I shook hands with one of the guys after we were done. And he dropped my hand like a rock. He says, your hand is frozen. I said, well, <laughs> yeah, but it'll warm up. And it does, you know. <clears throat> yeah, we put up those meats and uh, fill however many orders there are. And you know how those orders go. They come out in a big tub. Yep. Uh, we load them up. The orders we do are for the trucks. Okay. And we load them. Yeah, we load them on the truck and they go. We have uh, 10 or 11 churches that the truck goes yes. to. Yes. To deliver those yes. bins to people. And they pull their order out of the bin. It's in plastic bags <clears throat> and go home with it, you know. So, Al, I think that you sharing all this wonderful information is like a journal entry. And I want to ask you two more questions. Um, what is one thing, if you could give wisdom to the world, what would you say? What would be your advice? Build on your personal relationships. To me, that's, that's, our, that's our duty. That's our calling. As members of the church, we are to establish personal relationships with people so that we can be a resource uh, to them for righteous principles. Uh, so I like being, I, th I think friendship is a principle of the gospel. It's vital that we reach out and be friends with others. And you the definitely do that for sure. Well, I try to, I, I need to do more of it. The missionaries who came to see us the other day and give us a message. And the message was to do that very thing more. Uh, and it's, it's the principle of uh, 
as you reach out to people, we are ministering. And so that's, that's become the church uh, principle of fellowshipping people. So that is extremely important. That, that, that's my uh, advice to the world. Definite, my definite advice, yeah. And then okay. on a personal level, you need to go to church every week. Every, every, every week. Yeah. There's and why, things I why do you say you. that? Yeah, tell me why. Well, first of all, you renew your covenants through partaking of the sacrament. Second of all, you rub shoulders with everybody. And third are the sermons and the classes where you discuss the gospel more in depth. So I think that's, that's the essence of it right there. I, I don't, I, it, in my mind, if you wanna be an active member of the church, you need to go to church and be there. We relate to one another. We greet one another. We, I have been watching the uh, Ellinger girls and boys. Uh, I'm so grateful for the Millers who uh, make sure they get to church. Yes. And their grandma, who also figures yep. in there. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. They uh, are. When they were smaller, uh, Malia, the youngest girl, when she was just a two-year-old, uh, I think I was their home teacher. And I was recommending to Bishop Anderson that they receive a, a father's blessing, a child's blessing. Uh, and uh, so I, so their father, Bill, Bill Jones, he came and held them. And I was asked to give the blessing to Malia. So. Uh, I have, I have a special relationship with her. I think she's great. She's a good kid. That's wonderful, Al. Okay, my last question that I want to um, ask you is, how do you personally seek light? How do I what? How do you Say seek again? light? How do you personally seek light? Light. Yep. What do you do to seek light in your life? Sometimes I lay awake at nights thinking about things that come to mind and they're always usually gospel oriented. And I find myself 
having uh, almost a dream of people and situations uh, in the past. And uh, giving testimony to them. That fills me with the spirit. And I think that's when I see light. Well, Al, in the middle of the night. Well, I literally. Yeah. I feel like you have lived a life of light. You were constantly serving. I served on the ward council with you. I watched what you did. I'm aware of all the generosity, kindness, service, and love you show to others. You are greeting us all the time on Sundays. You're bearing your testimony at testimony meetings. And I just think that you have lived an exemplary life. And I am, I want you to know how grateful I am that you came on the podcast to share a little bit about your 90 years here on this earth. Well, I-, I am so grateful that you listened to my latest podcast. Please share these episodes with your family and friends. I look forward to being with you again soon. Have a great day.